0: Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is film critic Glenn Kenny, author of the book, Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas, published in 2020 by Hanover Square Press. Thirty years ago, Goodfellas premiered in theaters and quickly became the gold standard for the modern gangster film. It also provided Martin Scorsese a new focus for his filmmaking. Based on Nicholas Pelegi's bestseller, Wise Guy, the movie was a tour de force presentation of crime and excess. Glenn's book is a complete overview of the movie, including many useful details that add immeasurably to the film. Welcome, Glenn Kenney. Hi, Glenn. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me today.
1: Oh, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much for asking.
0: I know this must be a busy time for you since your book, Made Men, The Story of Goodfellows, was just published this week as we are talking. Of course, it's also the 30th anniversary of Goodfellas in, uh, that came out in 1990, obviously, so I'm looking forward to diving into the book. But I'd also like to talk a little bit about your background in film. I think we can use the word prolific to label your work. Uh, you currently write for The New York Times and RogerEbert.com and you've written books about Star Wars and Robert De Niro. But when did you decide in life that film was going to be a career rather than a hobby and an obsession?
1: Actually, well, it was always an obsession. So, uh, you know, it didn't become a career until relatively late in my writing. Not late, my, but, you know, I began as a music critic. I was a rock critic. I uh, wrote in uh, the magazine Musician and the Village Voice for a long time. I was... uh, I wrote a notoriously um, dumb review of a, of a tribe called Quest Album for Rolling Stone that I'm still excoriated for on the Internet whenever somebody comes upon it. Uh, you know, I was mainly a music critic for a long time, and I started writing about film professionally in the mid 80s um, at a magazine called Video Review, where I worked from 1986 until about 1990, 91. And that was an unusual magazine. I mean, nowadays, print being in the terrible state that it's in, the um, idea of magazines that thrive is almost foreign. And here in Video Review, here was a magazine that was a consumer magazine about home video hardware and software. It was not a trade publication, and yet it was a very sustainable and even profitable thing. And in 1990 or so, we were celebrating the magazine's 10th anniversary uh, uh, of publication. And uh, I've been writing about laser disc film in the form of laser discs and so on at at video review for about, uh, for for three or so years. That was really where I got my start writing about film as such. But also I wrote a lot about technology. Um, I wrote, um, you know, the first review of the, of the first 35-inch cathode ray tube television it was uh, it was a uh, the first home surround sound system created by Shure, which was you know these three behemoth amplifiers with huge heat sinks that it took like three hours to assemble. Uh, so I had a, I had a I had a lot of a technical background, and most of the technology that I wrote about is now completely obsolete. So that tech background is more or less useless, but. Um, So I've been writing about film and uh, my publisher, uh, the publisher of the magazine uh, wanted a lot of big names for our 10th anniversary issue. And, um, you know, I, I commissioned work from Dave Barry. He was really great to work with. I tried to get Matt Groening to do a life in hell graphic uh, about, you know, VHS or something like that. Couldn't do that. You know, and one person I approached was Martin Scorsese because his, film preservation efforts uh, were, were starting to really accelerate at the time, and I wanted to have him write an essay about the importance of home via video and the then inchoate idea of the home theater, how that was important to, uh, you know, cinephilia, the idea that you could actually have in your house your own film library and why that was exciting and important. And at that time, in the uh, winter of 1989, he was editing Goodfellas. Um, so he didn't have time to sit down and write an essay. Uh, the idea was pitched, a fee was negotiated, and I was asked to go to Scorsese's office and speak with him for about an hour, and then uh, draft up the notes into essay form, and then he'd sign off on it. So I did go up there, and he was in the midst of editing um, Goodfellas, which at the time was called Wise Guy which was the title of Nick Pelleggi's book upon which the film is based, a fantastic book, Uh, still a great read. And um, he was telling me about this picture. He said it was, you know, he was hoping even though it was going to be about two and a half hours long, he predicted, it came in something like 220, 225, uh, that it was going to be the most fast-paced film he'd ever done because he was being very influenced, he said, by tabloid television documentaries, uh, inside edition was just getting started at that time as was stuff like uh unsolved mysteries uh and also by the untouchables not the film that his friend brian de palma made but rather the 50s uh television series uh with uh robert stack as elliot ness yeah. robert stack is elliot ness and robert stack is the host of unsolved mysteries is the bridge between the untouchables and tabloid television but uh he said those were influences on the film but if you look at the film the influences Uh, You know, you don't necessarily recognize those influences because even that style of television has become kind of outdated, outmoded by now. Um, But there was that speed, the momentum, the use of still photographs and montages, all of which is also a hallmark of French New Wave filmmaking, which was also very influential on Goodfellas. So, you know, having been a Scorsese fan, I felt a connection uh, to his films that was personal from the very start. But uh, working with him on this essay while he was editing Goodfellas made me want to write about Goodfellas all the more. Now, after working at Video Review, I did not uh, write about. I wrote about films in Entertainment Weekly as a freelancer, and I had a job at Stereo Review, and that was also more music oriented. And eventually, uh, one of my colleagues at uh, Video Review, Jim Meggs, got hired to be editor in chief of Premiere, and he brought me on to work with him. He had me at first writing about tech again, but then he had me uh, work with David Foster Wallace on his essay, David Lynch Keeps His Head, and that essay got nominated for a National Magazine uh, Award, and I was brought on full-time. And I wrote features, mostly, and did editing. And then in 1999, we determined that we were going to have a very proactive review section in Premiere. We had an essay every month contributed by Todd McCarthy of Variety, who was a great critic, But we didn't have a consistent uh, roundup of new films, partially because Premiere was a monthly magazine and the lead time was such that we didn't feel like we could review them in a timely enough way. But we also had this, if we build it, they will come philosophy, that if we decided to start running a review section with nine, anywhere from three to nine reviews in, in a month, that studios would help us out, they'd give us access to films earlier than usual and so on. And that ended up working out pretty well, although it was pretty stressful for me because I'd be the guy coming into the office on a Friday night at eight o'clock to write up a review of, um, say, the talented Mr. Ripley that they were literally holding up the shipping of the magazine to put in at the last minute. So it it was exciting, too, though, it was a real Johnny deadline kind of situation. Uh, So that kind of gave me my grounding as a film critic as such. And then I covered festivals and so on. And that went on for quite some time, from 1999 to 2008. Uh, You know, in 2007, the print version of Premiere folded and I um, made the mistake of staying on for a a rather um, ill-conceived and ill-executed digital version of Premiere, which was one of the most miserable experiences if if the if if the eight uh, if the eight nine years at Premier, uh, well actually twelve years at Premier proper, uh, were one of the great experiences of my life. The ten months at Premier, the website was one of the worst, and it got worse when uh, some new management came in. I'm not going to mention the guy's name, but um, the reason that Premier is not available as a digital archive is because of these. Ah, uh, penny pinching, idiot people who were brought in, who just you know wrecked it, who just you know broke, just wrecked stuff and left. Um. Then I worked for a while at uh, MS and M- M- the Microsoft Networks website, doing regular reviews for them, and that was a lot of fun. And th- again, that was a weird situation when the Microsoft Network decided to stop putting original content on the website. Not only did they stop putting up new content, but they just wiped away everything that had been written. So I had like literally I don't know three to four years of work just wiped away. Um, I still have the drafts in various computers and that's fine. but it's you know it's a weird it's a weird time to be published uh, in in the world of of, of websites and stuff because you just never know what's going to last or not. It's part of the reason I still maintain my blog even though there's no actual there's not a lot of actual blogging going on these days because my work with ebert.com and the new york times keeps me very busy but i just like to have a place where i can kind of like have a semi-permanent you know paid for uh venue for my work um so you know that that was my journey and during my time at premier i had a lot of interaction with scorsese we did one of my favorite things at premiere was doing a joint interview with scorsese and spike lee which was great and then talking to Scorsese about various films Um, when Robert Mitchum and Jimmy Stewart died. He wrote an essay for us, uh, uh, an appreciation of them. So we had a lot of interaction on a lot of different levels and that kind of set into um, my being able to uh, get access to him for this book.
0: Yeah. um, I found a interesting question and answer. Uh, article on the Robert Robert Roger Ebert site from 2014, in which you were asked a bunch of questions related to film and things, and you told this wonderful story about going to see Frenzy in 1972 with a with a relative, <laughs> because My at grandmother. T- your grandmother, because at the time you obviously were underage. Um, you and right. I are close in age, but I think I'm a little older than you, and enough that I remember video review quite well as as, as mm-hmm. remember mm-hmm. stereo review quite well. I subscribed to video both.
1: review was a fun magazine. It was a fun magazine to read, especially if you were inclined towards that sort of stuff. And it was a fun place to work, despite the the guy who ran it being a rather uh, mercurial and temperamental figure um, and being underpaid, of course, which is the, the constant lament of, of of people in our situation. But um, video review is a fun magazine. I could see if I was someone who was just a reader how much I'd look forward to it every month. Oh, yes, I definitely did.
0: Because I, I, at the time, obviously, this was one of the few ways you could really keep up because obviously no online. So if it, if you weren't getting it in your n- newspaper, you had to find magazines or other formats. to. And that's why, like I say, I read video review, stereo review. I remember Premiere magazine very fondly, but... Um, uh, but so all of those are I'm sure I have read your writing and I just never knew it was you, so to speak. Uh, so in 72, well, we obviously know that you snuck in to see. Fr- well, you didn't sneak in, but you went to see Frenzy. Is
1: this is the terrifying yeah. thing. You know, I hadn't yet had my growth spurt, which shot me up to six foot three at the age of 14 and enabled me to start going to R-rated movies with complete uh, impunity. Uh, the two films that. uh Prior to that, that were very important for me to see were Slaughterhouse Five and uh, Frenzy. Slaughterhouse Five because I had read the book and I would love the book. Yeah, I was a very, I was kind of a precocious autodidact child in terms of reading and film, and I had an uncle who was only about uh, ten or fifteen years older than me, um, and um, he took me to see that, and that was fine because you know he appreciated. Uh, you know, he didn't nudge me or anything like that, but he was he was fine rolling with the nudity of uh, Valerie Perrine's Montana Wild hack. But frenzy was a something wholly other because uh, I very much wanted to see it. I, it had been talked about as being a a huge comeback for Hitchcock, whose last whose prior films, including Topaz, were not terribly well received. So you know it seemed exciting and interesting and grisly and all sorts of cool stuff. and uh, my parents were uh, at the time kind of fed up with uh, indulging my uh, my film Jones on a regular basis. So, uh, yeah, you want to see that movie? Like, go go ask your grandmother. So I asked my grandmother, who was very much like, Oh yes, Alfred Hitchcock, he made Rebecca. Um, so off we go. And you know, one thing I'd love to write about, and I'm thinking about pitching this as my next book. I'd love to write about how the old school Hollywood directors like Preminger, Weiler, Hitchcock and others uh, handled the new freedoms that came their way once the production code um, dissolved. And I know that, you know, uh, Preminger, of course, was someone who was actively lobbying for the production code to go away. But even he, at the point that it happened, kind of went a little wobbly, arguably, although these are films I admire to a certain extent for their conviction and daring but you know he some would argue he went extremely wobbly with something like skidoo the uh, jackie gleason on lsd movie um uh, you know and and uh, certainly a lot of people could argue that with frenzy hitchcock took all of his weird sexual predilections peccadillos, and and obsessions and you know instead of making them subtext made them text and so you have the uh, the strangler character just sort of drooling over the breasts of the woman he's raping and strangling, and it's a shocking, lurid image, and it's terrifying and awful. And I'm sitting there with my grandmother, and there we are. And that was that. And um, that was maybe one of the most awkward, but very, very quiet rides home from the movies that I ever experienced
0: I think I had we've had of course now people have had similar I I know one I luckily never had an experience like that but I do have experiences sitting in a room with my mother watching video recordings of movies that I'd never would have seen with her if I had had any chance at all so I understand that story
1: yeah I was a little embarrassed seeing Raging Bull with my own mother at the age of 20 frankly um you know, she liked the movie. We weren't scandalized by it, but every now and then I was like, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, you know, then, then once my growth spurt happened, I was just able to walk right in, but my friends and I didn't use our, uh, use our latitude or, or our, our ability to fool people to get into, you know, overtly dirty movies. We, we were cinephiles. So we would go see, you know, Chinatown and, um, and blazing saddles and, and yeah, the dirty Harry films for sure. But we weren't going to see, you know, grindhouse stuff that came later. I think as a, as a high schooler, you had that rite of passage that uh, your, your, your knucklehead friends and you go see a, something at a porno theater. And uh, that definitely happened, but that was around the time I was 17 and I'd moved to Wayne where porno theaters were rampant, uh, not rampant, but easily accessible. There was a, there was a former Jerry Lewis. Remember when Jerry Lewis had his own franchise of movie theaters that showed only f- Family Fare? So the Jerry, there was in Wayne, there was a strip mall, and they had a Jerry Lewis cinema, and it went out of business. And as soon as it went out of business, it was converted into a porno theater, um, and that's where I saw Around the World with John Holmes. Uh, I won't use I won't use his uh, stage name. It's a little vulgar, but yeah. Uh, and that's the thing that makes high school kids very, have experience a lot of feelings. Um, so yeah, but, uh, yeah, we, we were mostly cinephiles. So yeah, it was all about seeing Chinatown, uh, not about anything else.
0: One of the things I remember the most about Frenzy at the time, and this may be apop- apocryphal, but I'm going to say it anyway, was what I had read is the original, the original plan for Alfred Hitchcock's cameo was that he was going to be a body floating down the water when they're pulling somebody out of, out of the water, but I don't know if that one's actually... It, it wasn't what the cameo yeah. ended up being. I,
1: I, I had heard that, too, but I don't think he was in any kind of shape to do that kind of stunt work.
0: <laughs> right. So my I guess my question is, obviously another famous movie came out in 1972, and that was The Godfather. How long before you got oh, a chance yeah. to see that?
1: I think I saw it relatively early on, uh, you know, maybe two or three years after it first came out. I mean, it played a long time. Uh, you know um and uh the, the funny thing is when the book came out i was in grade school and everybody was passing around this dog-eared mass-market paperback of the book uh you know around fifth grade or so with the dog-eared pages having to do with sunny uh you know seducing in in his own you know bon vivant way one of the bridesmaids at connie's wedding and the uh,
0: you know the the
1: the verb thrust was was used quite frequently and this was you know something that kids they stole their parents copy of the godfather and brought it to school and passed it around and everybody was sort of scandalized and confused because you don't know you know your 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 knowledge as a fifth grader about how to do sex is of course rightly uh limited uh but you know the kids were curious anyway so but you know, even, even as the kids were passing around this book and, and reading the dirty parts, I was like, this isn't really what the book's about, is it? I, I mean, I didn't, you know, make a, make a point of being a paydant about it, but it's sort of like, you are know, kind of missing the point. Uh, and then when the film came out, you know, the scene is is there, but it's, it's definitely truncated and, uh, it's not the point. The point is something wholly other. And, uh, a lot of the things about that movie that were very groundbreaking uh you know including the violence i mean if even though we've seen the wild bunch the shooting of sunny at the toll booth is still kind of so over the top and so brutal that you know it's it's it's, it goes into a whole other category um but i did make a point of seeing that as a as we made a point of seeing mean streets you know uh when we saw mean streets which was not for first feature but definitely his first really personal feature, his first feature to be made almost entirely in his own voice. uh, I saw it with a friend and we're watching it and there's that opening, you know, and as someone who's Italian-American, my mother was, uh, my mother's people were from Naples um, and my friend was Italian-American and we were Jersey born and raised, you know, uh, we're watching this film and, you know, there's that drum of Be My Baby, accompanied by the home movies at the beginning, the opening uh, credits, and uh, little Lily and my friend and I are looking at each other, even at the age of 13, we're like, hey, this guy gets it, you know, so uh, that's how I became a Scorsese fan.
0: That was going to be my next question, actually, is when was he on your personal radar? Obviously, we know now that it was by Mean Streets. Um, Obviously, um, Scorsese's career has its ups and downs, but there's no question that um, I was recently talking to Eric San Juan, who wrote a book about the films of of Martin Scorsese, and we talked a lot about Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, since that's one of his early mm-hmm, ones. Mm-hmm. And 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 most people probably wouldn't think of them, the average person today would never occur to them that, that he might have had anything to do with that film, unless they're reasonably well-versed in film. So... Before I read the book, I made sure that I reread. I, I, I purposely, to prepare, I wanted it because it had been a while. I went back and reread uh, Pelegi's book, Wise Guys, and then also rewatched sure. the films. Um, let's talk about Pelegi's book uh, as the starting point because I do feel like Scorsese does a pretty good job of following it. He doesn't get too far off. Obviously, he edits it down, but. One of the things I noted from reading the book was that the book is told from a lot of different perspectives, mostly Henry Hill's, but his wife talks too in the book, and I noticed that Scorsese used that same technique in the film where Henry Hill obviously narrates most of the film, but every once in a while Karen would come in with her statements and such, and I found that to be an interesting way to use Pelleggi's book as part of the, the film. How involved was Pelegi in the making of Goodfellas?
1: He was involved um, up to a point, um, and then he wasn't involved because uh, he um, he tells the story in my book about how um, he got a call from Scorsese. Scorsese was so excited about Wise Guy that he actually his personal assistant found Pelleggi's home phone number and he called Pelleggi at home um, and uh, you know, no, he called Pelleggi at the office of New York and he left a message and Pelleggi thought uh, uh, that it was his buddy David Denby, the film critic for New York magazine at the time, doing a prank call on him. Uh, So he didn't return the call. So uh, and then the call happened again. Um, so, I mean, um, so he kept thinking it's, it's Pelleggi that it's, that it's Denby. And then Nora Efron, his wife, um, is, uh, is saying to him schmuck, why aren't you, uh, answering Martin Scorsese's call? And Pelleggi says, no, that's not Martin Scorsese's call. You know, um, he's, um, it's Denby's busting my balls. This is nonsense. And then I was like, no, someone who's a script supervisor on color of money, who's worked on one of my films, got in touch with me and says, Marty wants to know why you're not answering his call. And Pelleggi like, uh-oh. So they, that once that happened, they immediately connected. And and Pelleggi had been a fan of Scorsese's pictures. He wasn't thinking at the time too much in terms of uh, making the film and the book into a film, but certainly The people uh, who represented him were very keen on it. And he had had it in his mind to an extent that, you know, once Scorsese expressed interest, he felt like it was a dream come true because he thought, well, this is the guy to make this film. This guy knows this world because he'd seen Mean Streets. He was very taken with Scorsese's documentary about his parents and about the little Italy neighborhood he grew up in called Italian American. So he's like, yeah, this is the guy. Um, So. As a result, he was very accommodating to Scorsese, because Scorsese uh, wanted to do the film, but he also needed to complete The Last Temptation of Christ, a a passion project he'd been working on for years that was supposed to go into production with Paramount in the early 80s. And then Barry Diller, Tower of Jell-O and, 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 and Destroyer of Culture, who lives to this day to destroy culture. Um hold the plug on it because he wanted to avoid controversy Um, and uh, then Universal came around and said we'll set it up for you because Mike Ovitz the super agent at CAA put all the elements together so but he had to do that became a now or never thing so not only he said to Pelleggi let's write the script but then I got to take a year and I got to go make Last Temptation and Pelleggi said yes I mean Pelleggi really put his foot down you know other people were circling the property Brian De Palma was uh, expressed interest and he said you know I like Brian personally I like his films a lot but this is not a film this is not a De Palma film this is a Scorsese film he was absolutely right so then they wrote the script together and after they wrote the script together frankly um Pelleggi uh you know dropped out he didn't drop out but he doesn't uh you know I asked him a lot of the times writers like to be on the set. A lot of the times the writer will ask to be given a cameo in the movie, this, that, and the other thing. You know, I, I asked about the possibility of doing a cameo in the movie, and he shook his head like that was nonsense. That wasn't his place in, in life, the world, anywhere. And, you know, that he'd be available for rewrites, but never actually on the set. He'd He'd always, he'd stay at a hotel. He'd have a hotel room somewhere close to where the shoot was, And if there was a rewrite needed or some consultation needed, he'd be driven out there or someone would come to him and they'd talk it over. You know, he talks about how one of the most famous scenes in the movie that he's often complimented for is one that he had nothing to do with writing. Which is uh, the scene uh, uh, at the Bamboo Lounge where Tommy uh, puts Henry through the whole inquisition of uh, how am I funny? And that scene was improvised. It wasn't improvised on set, but it was, it was talked through with Joe Pesci and Martin Scorsese. It wasn't in the finished script, but it was rehearsed and laid out. And, uh, you know, the, the Warner execs who were on the set that day were a little upset about that because they're like, this isn't in the script. What are you doing? Even though it's a classic scene, but, um, uh, Felix is a smart guy, he also knows this world and he knows that even if that story didn't happen in Wise guy that it's definitely a story that could happen in the world of those characters and it is a story that happened in Joe Pesci's world when he was doing the nightclub circuit in New Jersey and the nightclub circuit in Jersey through the 50s and 60s was mobbed up to the max, you know, as you can read about in um, Nick Tosh's biography of Dean Martin the whole circuit from Cleveland to you know New York uh, was just completely mobbed up so good old well, Shonda me, burns you know, in Cleveland <laughs> right I still know, remember well, the day you, he,
0: he, he was blown up in front of the theatrical I know exactly where the theatrical was. I used to work near there and it's just like that yeah. was the thi- that was the place in um, in Cleveland where the mob hung out.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so he knew that, and uh, he knew he knew well enough to say, "Yeah, do it. Let's do it." And um, so um, you know, um, so you know, he gets credit for it. He says, "I had nothing to do with writing it," but you know, he'll just he'll 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 roll with it. But he he knows that you know these things are all the the contributions of the people who are are invested in this movie making and who really care about getting it right, and who want to bring their, um, you know, um, uh, experience to it. Uh, so, you know, that he keeps his distance and uh, lets him make the film. And uh, I think he had a similar attitude when doing Casino, you know, which he co-wrote the script with Scorsese on that as well. Um, so, yeah, very much involved and very much uh, also knowing when to say, yeah, you know, um, I'm not going to be a diva and, uh, and protest this because they're doing it for the, for this, to make the film as, as vivid and true as possible.
0: So then you get into, after you discuss um, Casino, or excuse me, Wise Guys, you then start to talk about pre-production of the film. And one of the things that's, that jumped off the page to me was the discussion of casting and the one that I think, and you have to remember how big he was at the time, but the concept of Tom Cruise as Henry Hill. I think uh, that is one that uh, I'm not sure what would have happened there. What kind of issues, did Scorsese have issues, though, in assembling the actors he wanted?
1: Uh, you know, there are different stories about it, and... Um... You know, I was just talking with some people online about, well, uh, wasn't John Malkovich offered the part of Jimmy Burke, uh, as he was known then, with his real name, or Jimmy Conway? Um, uh, So, you know, uh, I think, you know, he worked with Ellen Lewis as the casting director for the first time, and Ellen Lewis had come over from an agency that he had been working with, and she struck out on her own, so this was her first big movie uh um and uh you know they put out a lot of calls and the casting of the uh supporting players was very uh involved and they saw lots and lots of headshots lots and lots of people lots of video audition, auditions but someone were saying wasn't john malkovich offered this part i'm like well you know people talk about how that happened it's not in my interviews with erwin uh Erwin Winkler and Scorsese and Robert De Niro uh, Malkovich doesn't come up Um, it's um, but people like to talk about it well wouldn't it have been interesting if Malkovich had been in the film I'm like well uh, I don't think I don't you know even if it was discussed I don't think it would have happened because I don't think it would have been interesting you know I don't think it would have been good I mean Malkovich is a Russian gangster yeah that makes sense Malkovich is a Ital- as an Irish gangster, not so much. Uh, and in the film, in the book, I talk about two movies that were made about Lufthansa heist, in which the character of Jimmy Burke is played by, in one film, John Mahoney of Fraser fame, and in another film by Donald Sutherland. And in the film with Donald Sutherland, he plays Jimmy. His real name was Jimmy Burke, and in Goodfellas, the name was changed to Jimmy Conway because Jimmy Burke's uh, daughter wanted $100,000 for the use of the Burke name. So as a result, they changed all the names down the line. Paul Vario became Paulie Cicero. Uh, Marty became Maury, da, 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 da. Um, So um, in the film with Donald Sutherland, he plays Jimmy Burke with an Irish accent, which is super weird because Jimmy Burke was just was raised in New York City. He wasn't uh, um, uh, it wasn't wasn't Irish, but you know the thing is you have to get over the anxiety of influence with De Niro, and I guess a way to do that is just completely go Gonzo. Um, so you know it didn't concern me too much to talk about. Oh well, they might have cast such and such and so and so. You know, it was you know it was part of the it was part of the idea was that you know. For Scorsese, I think it made sense to have two relative unknowns play Henry Hill and Karen Hill because they're, as characters in a gangster movie, they're, they're, um, they're, uh, they're new types of characters. The idea of a, this told from a mafia foot soldier point of view. And remember that except for, the scheme is almost like casting Brando in The Godfather because except for Brando in The Godfather, almost all of the supporting cast are, are new people, people who weren't that famous at the time. Diane Keaton wasn't famous, Al Pacino wasn't famous, Duval was a, a known figure in film for many years, but he was a, a supporting character actor who played a lot of different parts. He wasn't a, a known name. Um, uh, Jim James Kahn wasn't that well-known, John Cazale, all these kind of relative unknowns playing this fresh approach to a, a crime movie because all the other mafia movies, not that there were a whole hell of a lot of them, but almost all the other mafia movies made prior to that, except for the B movies, like the Brothers Rico with Richard Conti and stuff like that, were movies that had like completely in a positive cast, like Martin Ritz, The Brotherhood, with Kirk Douglas as a Sicilian Don. One reason people thought The Godfather would never work is because films like The Brotherhood bombed, and the reason they bombed, or one reason they bombed is because they were absurd. You know, so Coppola's coup in casting, I mean, obviously, James Kahn is Jewish, he's not Italian, and, you know, there's all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, ways that the the, the ethnicity of the cast doesn't line up with the ethnicity of the characters, but the types and the looks are much more authentic in The Godfather. And it's one huge legendary star with a cast of, of people who aren't as well known. And in a way, that's one way that Goodfellas follows. The uh, dynamic of The Godfather. You you can talk all you want about who may or may not have been offered or considered for the role of Jimmy Conway, but the fact that De Niro is Jimmy Conway in the finished film is really the salient and most important factor of it. And I mean, I think Pelleggi really assumed that if if Scorsese was going to make a film of wise guy, that De Niro would be involved in it somehow. Um, And what happened was the De Niro read the book, I think, before he read the script, and he noticed right away that the way the Henry Hill character plays in the, move, in, in the book, he's mostly, you know, it's mostly in his young adult years. And he thought, well, I'm too old now to do uh, to do Henry, but hey, I'm just um, I'm just the right age to do one of Henry's mentors, uh, and that would be Jimmy Conway. So um, that was one of those things that just, you know, you look at it now and it seems predestined and kind of perfect. So um, I did not even want to talk about who was talked about. There's an example that Erwin Winkler brings up in my interview with him that he had brought up before. And that's in his wonderful book, um, a life in movies that Terry Semel and somebody else at Warner brothers had pitched um, Tom Cruise and Henry Hill and uh, Tom Cruise to play Henry Hill and Madonna to play Karen Hill. And um, you know, what uh score says he'd worked with Tom Cruise in Color of Money and they had a productive working relationship and I think Cruise did a great job as a performer in that film but Winkler looking back says no Cruise was entirely wrong at that time in his career to play Henry Hill can you see he says to me can you see Tom Cruise going crazy on cocaine in a movie at that time I'm like eh. I mean he did other he did things that seemed unusual for him um but you know i would i would be inclined to agree with winkler there and then about madonna he just he wouldn't even countenance it so you know um to have that cast you know and to bring teshi back as well um i just you know it's one of those scorsese is very good with casting and you see in his films people who have very small but important roles and they go on to do amazing things like Forrest Whitaker in this, The Color of Money as this pool uh, cool player who hustles Paul Newman's character that's that's one of the great like little supporting bits in the history of movie it's right up there with you know Mickey Rourke and body heat you know you just look at this guy and it's this is combination of a uh, charisma and talent and you go whoa this guy's going to be a huge star um, so and he finds those people Um, In this film, you have Isaiah Whitlock, uh, Wilker White, these character actors who do such great work and are just incredibly reliable.
0: So um, during the production process, obviously, you you spend a lot of time talking about the production process, but then you go literally two chapters that I think basically present an overview of the film. First one, literally the the whole film start to finish visually. But then you talk about the music and that's important because obviously one of the things that we hear a lot about Scorsese is his especially recent you know in his in nowadays is his use of of popular music for his soundtracks. Uh, many of his films he doesn't even have anything else for soundtracks. The entire soundtrack is the uh, is the the pop songs that he uses. Um, what kind of uh, information did you find as far as Number one, were many of the songs ones that he had planned all along, or was there a large amount of time that he had to spend deciding where he was going to use what song, including having to get the rights for them?
1: Yeah, it's a combination of both. And the rights were complicated and kind of expensive for the time. Goodfellas is one of those films that uh, makes getting ri- that made getting rights even more expensive than it was at the time, by the way. Um, but uh, Barbara Defina, who is married to Scorsese and is accredited executive producer on Goodfellas, told me that when they were, you know, that the, the, the thinking, he was thinking about the music for what was then Wise Guy and became Goodfellas for a long time. She said while they were in Morocco working on Last Temptation of Christ, that's when Scorsese came up with the idea of using the Sex Pistols shit vicious cover of My Way for the uh, closing credits. And even as far back as writing the script, uh, Pelleggi tells the story in some documentaries. And he also told me the story. It's in the opening chapter uh, with Pelleggi that uh, he's in the very scene that the song appears in when uh, Jimmy Conway is thinking about killing Maury. Uh, there's, um, he told Pileggi, uh, write this down, write this down, write this down, uh, write down cream. And Pelleggi's thinking, what cream? dairy product, because Pileggi wasn't a rock and roll guy. He was a, you know, Bennett Sinatra, Jimmy Roselli guy, just like the mobsters were. Uh, but he writes down Cream in the margin anyway, because, you know, he's the typewriter and he's, suppose, he's the director. It was only a couple of years later when the film comes out, he's like, oh, Cream, this song, Sunshine of Your Love, uh, which, you know, was dismissed at the time of this recording by Jerry Wexler, uh, the great record producer, as Psychedelic Hogwash. The Scorsese rationalized it. Well, you know, gangsters didn't listen to Psychedelic Rock at that time, but he's in a bar. The bar has a jukebox, and the jukebox probably has this song on it. So that's the rationale. You know, a lot of the times in the film, uh, especially in the May 11th scene, the uh, music functions as a kind of a, a consciousness of its own that unites the consciousness of Scorsese and his sensibility to the consciousness of Henry Hill uh, and his frantic state while he's running around trying to, you know, give away guns, make dinner and uh, arrange for a drug uh, trafficking uh, event. All while watching uh, for a plane, watching a
0: helicopter over his head constantly.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, And when the helicopter, he looks over his head and he just sees blue sky, he doesn't see a helicopter that one minute. Then Muddy Waters comes in and says, "Everything gonna be all right this morning." And that's a snippet from "Manish Boy," and it's just that one snippet, and then it cuts off and it goes into "What Is Life" by George Harrison. But then "Manish Boy" comes back with its irrepressible stomp, and that's you know, as as the as as the day is getting more difficult. You know, uh, so it's it's, it's uh, you know, it's the rhythm of what's going on in the frame. And it's the information that the head of the character is processing and uh, several other dimensions. It's really very masterful, I think, in that scene and throughout Goodfellows, You know, he's orchestrating the, the vision and the sound in a way that's absolute genius.
0: So... Uh, one of the th- things that you talk about, because it, it shows that you were able to interview a large number of people for the book, and also probably from the past, uh, from past interviews they've done. One of the things I found interesting was Robert De Niro's how he prepared for the role, and you gave some of the background of some of the information that he would write down, as far as keep track of while he was preparing.
1: Yeah, he's a he's an actor who uh construct his characters from the outside in um you know he um he's very misunderstood a lot of people talk about his relation to the method but a lot of people don't understand what the method is i don't you know my friend isaac butler is in the middle of writing a a book about method acting that i think is going to really clear things up but that won't be out for a while but you know the method as defined by stanislavski uh you know, has to do with psychology and motivation. Who is my character? Why is he here? And it's, it's mostly thinking it through from the uh, inside out. Um, But with, with De Niro, he does it from the outside in because it's all about the character's appearance, you know, what he's wearing, how his hair is styled, the jewelry he has on, the ring he has on, the watch he has on, uh, all of that stuff. And that has been Part of the way he prepares for roles from the very beginning, when he was a young actor in New York struggling, his headshot was not a single headshot. It was a page with eight different shots of him in eight different costumes, including you know a nineteenth-century-style Russian with a, Venus, uh, a you know a Van Dyke beard to a New York City taxi driver, uh, and that you know De Niro's notes are all about. Um, how what jimmy wears and how jimmy conducts himself in you know in social interactions not you know does jimmy kill without remorse does jimmy have feelings does jimmy do this does jimmy do that it's about presentation and that's his way into the character
0: the other thing besides after you talk about the films itself obviously you then discuss editing and post-production and then of course release but the one chapter that I found very illuminating even though I knew some of the storyline was what actually happened to Henry Hill at at, at the end you know his eventual downfall obviously the film when he when the film ended uh, that was where he was I mean it was 1989 when the film was being made 1990 in that period so Obviously, that information in the film was correct, but we know now that uh, the rest of his life did not exactly end particularly well.
1: No, and, uh, you know, he is kind of a victim of his own appetites. Um, you know, Henry was in real life, the real life Henry Hill. I remember going to uh, to see uh, Edward McDonald, who plays himself in the movie and who uh, was the prosecutor who helped set Henry Hill up in witness protection, uh, and um, the first thing Edwards said to me was, "Henry is a schmuck." Um, you know, he was. He, Edwards uh, McDonald's opinion of Henry was he wasn't very good as a gangster, and I think uh, Nick Pileggi uh, echoes that to a certain extent. But Henry was the court jester of his crew. He, and he was well-liked, and he was entertaining. And even when he got nabbed, uh, he was entertaining for the cops that he was working with to uh, to uh, get evidence against the people he used to be involved with. You know, he'd make dinner. He was a very uh, avid and enthusiastic and good chef. Uh, so he always liked being the center of attention. And uh, part of the reason I think that he approached Pelleggi in the first place was because he missed he missed the life once he was out of it. And uh, his way of re-experiencing it was to relive it. Um, so, you know, um, and what? And he hated uh, witness protection. Uh, he hated that anonymity, even though he knew that breaking that anonymity was going to possibly get him killed. So once, you know, and he had been bristling against witness protection since, you know, he got in witness protection in the 80. Uh, according to Greg Hill, he got out in 84, although some say, you know, it was later than that, but Greg was his son, so he would probably know. Um, and then once Goodfellas came out, you know, um, I think the fact that, you know, these other people who were real celebrities were getting this celebrity based on his life, I mean, it didn't drive him homicidally crazy, but he thought, well, why can't I get in on this? And that's when he kind of really and and between that and separating from Karen Hill, which you know didn't take all that long, um, he started appearing out in public more. He started writing books. Uh, He wrote a, a, you know, uh, he he bounced around trying to outrun the mobsters he thought were after him. He spent some time in the Midwest, but you know after Goodfellas, um, you know he was a he was a Hollywood guy. He was an LA guy, and he wanted to be involved in that world and he wrote uh actually a a pretty good cookbook i i I use some of the recipes and actually it actually does contain the famous uh favorite of his brother michael the ziti with meat sauce which needs to be stirred for four hours and i actually made that at home and my wife called it life-changing so it's a good recipe um
0: better than the recipe that paulie did in in the godfather which everybody made fun of
1: Yeah, the uh, the Clemenza's tomato sauce recipe, which yeah, isn't as good as, uh, it's not as good as uh, Henry's Voodoo with meat sauce recipe. <laughs> um, it's close, though. I mean, you know, I like you know the slicing garlic, all that other stuff. You know, it's very interesting. And but Henry was also, uh, you know, he was starved for attention. He he felt more remorse about selling out his friends than he felt about any of the violent crimes he committed. So he became a rather sad alcoholic. And being an alcoholic in that kind of public life creates some pretty sad results, some of which are documented by Howard Stern on his radio show and, and also transcribed in his recent book, Coming Clean, uh, that Henry would call in drunk. and Oh, yeah, I remember Henry Hill's miserable. calls to
0: Howard Stern quite well, including the, the, the laugh he had. I mean, it was just like you could tell this was somebody who was – an absolute mess.
1: Yeah. That kind of maniacal laugh. Um, yeah. So, you know, and he, you know, he said to uh, Edward McDonald near the end of his life, um, you know, uh, you're my best friend. And Edward McDonald was like, thanks, but uh, I don't really know what to say to that because, uh, you know, it wasn't as if Henry was his best friend. He had a rich and varied social life, of which Henry was an unusual part. Um, And uh, there's a story in the book of uh, Henry wanting to go to um, Smith and Walensky's, a steakhouse where Edward McDonald was a regular and would still be a regular if it were open right now. Um, And, you know, leaving Denver, Colorado or wherever he was coming in from without bringing his false teeth with him. And, you know, uh, getting the Smith and Walensky's and not being able to eat anything with cream spinach and being so bombed that the owner wants them thrown out. So it's a sad thing. And, uh, you know, he would um, he would call Edward McDonald from uh, sitting on the pier at Santa Monica wanting to jump off, you know. So there's a whole chapter in the book about that. Right.
0: So then, of course, in the last chapter, you did write a concluding chapter that more or less with a quick overview of Scorsese from Goodfellas right up through The Irishman, uh, which, of course, is his most recent film uh, that's out uh, about Jimmy Hoffa, that, quite frankly, in many ways, mirrors uh, Goodfellas in some ways. What did you think of it?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's a completion. I was very relieved when I saw it, and I liked it as much as I did because— I was it, it, while the while I was writing the book the film was being edited that's part of the reason I didn't get to interview Scorsese until March 9th of 2020 which is uh, about 6 days before my manuscript was due because he was so busy working on The Irishman and then um you know then the whole then New York City shut down 2 days after I interviewed him so that was pretty hair raising and the interview I think is really good because I actually got him in kind of a preoccupied mood, so he was unusually frank and unusually—I um, mean, he's usually pretty frank, but you know, he just kind of went to town on the idea that anybody might have that filmmaking is an easy thing for him. Um, you know, since every movie since *Raging Bull* has been a knockdown, dragout fight, but uh, *The Irishman*, uh, you know, he had talked about *Mean Streets*. Goodfellas and Casino being his gangster trilogy. Even though The Departed is a film that has a strong crime element and there's certain crime element in Raging Bull, for him, uh, Mean Streets, uh, Goodfellas and Casino are are a real thread running from Little Italy to Queens all the way out to Las Vegas. And he said to Richard Schickel, you know, that's it. That's my last, you know, that's my last gangster film, meaning Casino, not The Departed, which I think Scorsese saw more as a police film than a gangster film. Um, but I think uh, Irishman makes it into a portent because the threat is very, um, is very definite. And Frank Sheeran, the main character of The Irishman, played by um, Robert De Niro, is very different from Henry Hill. He's the same kind of operative for the mob. He's a foot soldier but he takes it seriously to a fault in a way that's kind of dumb. Uh, And he doesn't realize, he thinks he's doing the right thing because he's following these orders from these people who are very good to him, but he has no sense of morality because he was taught to kill in the army. And he feels that killing is still a way to do things. And it's only at the end of his life when he just starts to get an inkling of what he's done wrong. And when he talks to one of his daughters And he says, I was just trying to protect you. And the daughter says, protect us from what? Uh, And he's this cipher who, you know, doesn't realize that he's lost his soul because he never really knew he had a soul in the first place. It's a very sobering contrast to the joyous amorality that Henry Hill indulges in and aspires to in Goodfellas.
0: The uh, book that The Irishman is based on, it's come out a few times but the most recent edition which I think they put the Irishman on the ty- on the on the cover now um has a lot of extra chapters in which the author is able to update because obviously when the book was first finished there were a lot of things that uh he didn't put in because he couldn't verify and one of the things that comes out to me so interesting is that uh the Sheeran character eventually over time says, I'm not going to turn in any, I'm not going to talk about anybody unless I know it's okay. And and just towards the end, he finally, at least it's his point of view as to what actually happened.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's very different books than uh, wise guy. I think it's put together in a much different way. And, uh, you know, Scorsese and Steve Zaley and, Took great cautions in terms of adapting it, not to make it so much about you know these spectacular revelations about Kennedy and Hoffa, but about the character. I think the the figure of Hoffa as such is peripheral to the figure of Sheeran as this guy who uh, uh, you know kills his best friend.
0: Yeah, there's a lot more in the uh, book about and it. has to live with it. Right. There's more in the book about the Kennedy stuff, but as a, as you say, it, it still is point of view and. Uh, but it's once again, I mean, you know some authors, some filmmakers like working original material. Some filmmakers do a combination, but it's interesting to see how um, Scorsese consistently seems to be able to find interesting sources, many of which are already very good, and create uh, something new with them.
1: That's for
0: sure. Well, obviously, the book has a lot more into it. Uh, I think uh, it's just such a great overview. There have been many books about the making of famous films, but there's no question that I found uh, Made Men to be one of the best. I really appreciate that you were able to, to talk to me about it. Obviously, there's a lot more we could have talked about, So, uh, but I think this is a good point to, to sort of sum it up and say, um, People, hopefully, as they rewatch the film now, given on th- the 30th anniversary and everything, that they make sure that they take the time to, to, to read your book as well.
1: Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Glenn. You bet.
0: My thanks to Glenn Kenny. I think his book will be an important part of Scorsese literature. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.